I invite you to join me in the book of Jeremiah, the first chapter, Jeremiah 1. We'll be reading verses 1 through 10. Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, and until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And then I said, Oh, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I'm only a youth. But the Lord said to me, do not say, I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth, see, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. This is the word of our great God. Let's pray. Our Father, attend this, the reading and the preaching of your word, we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit. For we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. My first year at SBU and I had the brand new Old Testament professor for Old Testament survey and he was an absolute firebrand. A descendant of northern Italy immigrants raised in Oklahoma. Other than his name, nothing about the man seemed Italian in any way, shape or form. His last name was Galliotti, and he spoke like an oaky from Muskogee. His dissertation was taken from, Rev, excuse me, uh, Jeremiah, the 31st chapter on the New Covenant. And I'm reminded as we would go through classes and he would talk about Jeremiah, and one of the possible translations of the name Jeremiah has in it the idea of something hurled or thrown and he said, Jeremiah was hurled like a guided missile at Judah by the Lord to finally try to get their attention and whether they heard or not to declare the upcoming judgment of Almighty God. If you ever have opportunity to go to Rome and to tour the Sistine Chapel, you can find there one of the images that Michelangelo placed on the ceiling was of Jeremiah 
He presents him in a posture of absolute despair. He appears emotionally exhausted, like someone who has wept until they can weep no more, and now sitting in abject grief, utterly crushed. Jeremiah is called by many the weeping prophet. So how does this ministry of some 40 years get underway? How does it begin? Well, the emphasis in these 10 verses appears to me to be the Word. Jeremiah's calling here gives us insight. You notice he begins by describing what this is. It is the words of Jeremiah. However, the words of Jeremiah happen because in verse 2, to him the word of the Lord came. And then in verse 4, the word of the Lord came. And nine, I have put my words in your mouth. And if you skip ahead to that 11th verse, the word of the Lord came to me. Jeremiah's calling here gives us insight into the impact of God's word, both on an individual as well as to nations. It's work in both personal and international history. The Lord, you know, we kind of get the idea the Lord only calls really gifted, important people to do the work. And I stand before you as a testimony, that ain't true. The Lord calls whom He will with all sorts of weakness, all sorts of frailties. The weakness of the person He uses does not in any way impact the might of what he intends to get done. In fact, Paul will say, the Lord Jesus told him, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. The Lord calls us by his word and then entrusts us with his word. Those things happen together. It is his word that calls and it's his word that is our task. I'd have you think of two main ideas here. First, I would call the word and history, verses 1 through 3. And then after that, from verse 4 to verse 10, the word and the messenger. We're given just a slight bit of personal history here. We know that he comes from the city of Anathoth. An insignificant village about an hour's walk over the hills northwards from Jerusalem, hardly mentioned in the Bible except in connection with Jeremiah. The village was close enough to Jerusalem that they could actually see the city walls. But it was right on the edge of the wilderness where the land begins to slope down to the Dead Sea. He was the son of Hilkiah, who was a priest. It is likely that Jeremiah... His ministry overlaps to greater or lesser degrees with prophets like Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Daniel, Joel, Ezekiel, and Obadiah. But he places this word coming to him in a not just personal history, the word of the Lord came to me, but rather at a specific point in time. Now, I'm sure the majority of you, can name from memory the successive kings 
in the history of Judah. But for those of us who don't have that memorized, I'm going to give you a little help. I remind you, after the era of the judges, the first king over the land of Israel was Saul. After Saul, David. Oh, good. Some are still with me. David dies, and he is succeeded by one of his sons, whose name is Solomon. Solomon dies. Now, this is where it starts getting tricky, right? Because with the next king, Rehoboam, a fracture takes place, and the land divides north and south. Rehoboam was a bad king and a fool. And he is instrumental in what became the split so that you had the northern kingdom Israel with its capital at Samaria and the southern kingdom Judah with its capital Jerusalem. The northern kingdom falls into apostasy much, much faster than the southern kingdom. But the southern kingdom is not immune. I'm going to give you a very fast survey here. Hold on to your hats. Rehoboam reigns in Judah and he is bad. And it even says in the text in 1 Kings chapter uh, 14, Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and they provoked him to jealousy with the sins they committed and he gives a descriptor. And then we find that next Abijam reigns in Judah and he's a lousy king as well. He walked in all the sins that his father did before him, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. And after him, Asa. Asa was a good king. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Jehoshaphat, another good king. He walked in the ways of his father Asa. He didn't turn aside from it. But we're also given little notes in the text of warning of what's coming because it will say the high places were not taken away. And the people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. Now, that was code language to say they still practiced idolatry. Okay? Jehoram succeeds Jehoshaphat, and he was a bad king. And yet the writer of Kings says, Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. After Jehoram, Ahaziah, another bad king. After Ahaziah, the queen mother, Athaliah, reigns until Jehoash is old enough to reign. He begins his reign and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but we're still given the warning. They still practiced idolatry. After Jehoash, Amaziah, another good king. King. After him, Azariah, whom you probably know better as Uzziah, Uzziah. Two names. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all his father Amaziah had done. Yet the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and made offerings. And the Lord touched the king so that he was a leper to the day of his death. And he lived in a separate house. You remember the story, even as good as Uzziah was. One day he took it upon himself to offer incense before the Lord. And when the priest tried to stop him, he is angry, raging. How dare you try to stop the king? And all at once, leprosy broke out on his forehead, his face. And he had to live outside in a secluded area 
away from everyone, and thus he died. Jotham, his son, reigns, and he did what was right. But again, the problem of the high place is not removed. After him, Hezekiah, he reigns in Judah. He was a good king. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But after him, the worst of the worst, the king named Manasseh. And the writer of 2 Kings says he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Verse 9 of 2 Kings 21, Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. Manasseh's long reign of wickedness basically sets what's going to happen to Judah. Amon reigns after that, another bad king. Josiah, now we get to something familiar, at least connected to Jeremiah. Josiah begins his reign when he was all of eight years old. Okay? And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the way, all the way of David his father, and he didn't turn aside to the right or to the left. This is the king who has reigned for 13 years when the call comes to Jeremiah. After Josiah, you have Jehoahaz, a bad king, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. After him, Jehoiakim, who did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And after him, Jehoiakim, who did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. I mean, it's just redundant. And then finally, one who was called Mataniah, whom Nebuchadnezzar renamed Zedekiah, 21 years old when he became king. Now listen to these words. This is from 2 Kings 24 at verse 19. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that Jehoiakim had done. Now listen. For because, the anger, because of the anger of the Lord it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. Now if you've been keeping tabs after Solomon, 19 kings reigned over the southern kingdom of Judah. Eight good, 11 bad. And now this comes to Jeremiah. I'm going to send you. Why do I emphasize this? Folks, I think sometimes we we so disembody the text, we miss what's actually going on. You know, there's a danger for all of us, isn't there? That we create something of a division between our experience of the grace of God, the goodness of God, the kingdom of God, the power of God, and we see it as happening isolated from the world around us. Now, admittedly, the world around us is a daunting thing. I don't know about you, but I, I find news depressing. Even the stuff they think is good, I often don't think so good. And you're only getting a small piece. Jeremiah is called right in the middle of a crisis. Josiah is holding back the judgment of God, if you will, because of the righteous way that he lives. But that's only going to last 18 more years, and then it's awful upon awful upon awful. 
And Jeremiah is called to be a prophet in that setting. Hear me, my friends, hear me. The Lord calls you to this time, this time, and right now, this place. Jeremiah is not only overwhelmed by the place in history, but he's got 800 years of prophetic history before him going all the way back to Moses. And besides that, the best we can do from the text is to come to this conclusion. Jeremiah is about 18 years old when he gets the call. He mentions the kings Josiah, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. He speaks in the middle of Josiah's reign. He speaks in the winter of 604 to Jehoiakim, who had 11 years of misrule. And in the final countdown to disaster in 586 with wretched Zedekiah, he was the weak king who was run by his advisors and could never bring himself to do the right thing. And it appears, my friends, as you read the story, the dream of an everlasting Davidic kingdom centered on Zion, the eternal city of the great God, was after all only a dream. And on the 17th of August, 586 B.C., Jerusalem went up in flames. And the hope died. The last descendant of David to reign on the throne, Zedekiah, finds himself at the mercy of King Nebuchadnezzar of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, watches as his sons are all put to death before him, and then is blinded and carried off into captivity. That is not a triumphant situation. But notice the connections made by Jeremiah. Not only time and place, but how he understood his place. What does he say? The words of Jeremiah, right? He, I wrote this. It's my stuff. To whom the word of the Lord came. Jeremiah had words to speak and write, but his words are the result of the word of the Lord having come to him. Christians, we, we emphasize here, and always have emphasized here, the primacy of the written word of God. This is the only way we know that God has spoken. It is in His inerrant, infallible, complete Word. We center on this. We advocate this. We encourage you to read, study, learn this. Not so you're some kind of scholar, but rather because as Jesus is told by Simon Peter when He says, do you guys want to leave also? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We must hear and heed this word in the time in which we live. And folks, you do understand that this business of being anxious about our own time is nothing new. This was not invented in the latter part of the 20th or early 21st century. It goes back. Often people have this horrible sense, why me, why now, why this? Even Tolkien finds a way to insert this in the Lord of the Rings as Frodo is saying, I'm not up to this, I don't want to do this. Why does this fall to me? And a, Tolkien through Gandalf gives the observation, nobody wants to do this. 
no matter what time they are called to do this. But there's a time when you must do the right thing. Right where you are, even though you think somebody else would be more qualified to do it. Hmm. So that's the word and history. Let me give you the second consideration. The word and the messenger. Now at verse 4, we're told, the word of the Lord came. At verse 9, he put out his hand, touched my mouth, said to me, I put my words in your mouth. First, let's consider this, the purpose of God and his messenger. The Lord did not wait for Jeremiah to volunteer. God is involved in Jeremiah's life. Now think about the depth and breadth of the involvement. Verse 6, excuse me, verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Oh, Christian, pay attention. God is the Lord of life. You are not an accident. Well, I know mom and dad didn't plan on me. I know that wasn't. It doesn't matter what anybody else was thinking. God ordained that you exist. He ordained the timing, the place, and the gifts, abilities, and weaknesses you possess. All of you. Oh, Christian young people, hear this. You're not an accident. You're not a mistake. God has set you at this time for His purpose. Further, it is not anything to get around or to try to deny that the fetus in the womb is seen by God as a person. This is not a case of special pleading. Certainly not all of us are in any way called to be prophets in this sense. But my friends, He knows you before you were born. He had purpose for you before you showed up. And much of your life would go much better if you realize that. This is not an accident. Jeremiah is not in the least bit shocked by the sovereignty of God. Known before you were formed, you were predestined to exist. Set apart to the task, you were predestined to serve. Do you realize the Scripture never makes this a secret? I still think folks will go along and they read the word predestined or they read the word called or they read the word sovereignty or they read the word elected or chosen and they think, oh, the Holy Spirit surely went, oh, I wish you hadn't written that. No, my friends. Well, that, that's the Old Testament. Yes, it is. But John 15, Jesus' own words, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Jesus made it everlastingly clear to the apostles that he had chosen them. 
The Apostle Paul will say nothing different in Galatians 1. But when it pleased God, who set me apart from birth, that he was ready to reveal his son to me. Hmm. My friend, this is not in the Bible to frighten you. It's in the Bible to encourage you. Every Christian has a calling beyond their call to salvation. There is a calling to our place in the kingdom. One of the huge crises that we're beginning to recognize in the church in the United States right now and I'll just say specifically to Baptist churches, the SBC, we are undergoing a crisis of leadership like we have never seen. I've shared this with several of you. Missouri alone has 280 Southern Baptist churches without pastors. Mississippi, over 800. One of the Carolinas, it's well over 500. And there doesn't appear to be anybody fill them. Churches are having horrible times. One of the things the directors of mission had at their national conference at the convention last June was a conversation that they're hearing from their churches. Not only can't they find pastors, they can't find deacons. They can't find people to serve. Now why would I talk about that? Jesus told us the fields are white to harvest. Pray the Lord of the harvest to thrust messengers into the field. Oh, that the Lord would do that. The Christian, the anchorage for that. Listen to these words from Eugene Peterson. My identity does not begin when I begin to understand myself. There is something previous to what I think about myself, and that's what God thinks of me. That means that everything I think and feel is by nature a response, and the one to whom I respond is God. I never speak the first word. I never make the first move. Jeremiah's life didn't start with Jeremiah. Jeremiah's salvation didn't start with Jeremiah. Jeremiah's truth didn't start with Jeremiah. He entered the world in which the essential parts of his existence were already ancient history. So do we. purpose of God and the messenger the purpose of God and the messenger's objection well you know this isn't new when you read that sixth verse ah oh, Lord God behold I don't know how to speak for I'm only a youth <laughs> Moses didn't have the excuse of being a youth he's 80 what was his excuse can't talk. And by the way, the interview with the Lord belies that entire notion. He talked real good when he wanted to. Gideon and his fleas, remember? <laughs> now, Lord, I know you called, but I'm not sure you called. So just to make sure that you actually called, let's play a little game here with the fleas. Hmm. His objections, Jeremiah's, are two, and they're connected. I don't know how to speak, and I'm too young. Or to paraphrase, another brother did it this way. Oh, wait a second, Lord. About this whole prophet of the nations thing. It doesn't sound like a great idea. 
Prophecy is not one of my spiritual gifts, as you know. I'm getting a C in rhetoric in synagogue school. Besides, I'm just a teenager. Do not be surprised by the calling of God coming when you are young. By the way, God doesn't even really address his objection. He simply says, I'll send and I'll tell you what to say. I, this is so profound because he, he basically points out God is not limited by our weakness. Doesn't matter that you're 18, 17, 19, whatever it is. I'm telling you to do this and I'll give you what you need to do it. A moment of personal testimony. When I believe the Lord saved me, I also had a tremendous sense of calling. And I don't know, I'm not a very good mystic, I just know that was true. And my problem wasn't so much Jeremiah's, I'll just admit. I was way too cocky. Who'd have thought an eight, you know, 15, 16, 17, 18 year old guy that was a little full of himself? Okay, maybe a lot full of himself. And yet, my friends, God used that teenager to do work in the kingdom. And he was patient and taught that young man. Young people, hear me when I say this. Your abilities or lack are not defining of what God may do with you and through you. So we've considered the purpose of God and his messenger and his messenger's objection. How about the purpose of God and the messenger's preparation? <laughs> the Lord's response is, don't be afraid. It's a little bit like the story of the king who sent his knight off to rescue his fair princess. And just as the knight crossed the drawbridge and was closing behind him, the king stood on the ramparts and yelled out, Don't be afraid of the dragon! Dragon? What dragon? You didn't say anything about dragons. What's the greatest encouragement here? I am with you. Do you see that? I command you, I am with you to deliver you. And then we get this picture the Lord put his hand, put out his hand and touched my mouth. Now, this parallels in some ways what happens to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, right? Sixth chapter of Isaiah, he's seeing the Lord, and what's Isaiah's crisis though? He has seen the Lord, and what does he feel but his wickedness, his failure, his uncleanness? And so the Lord instructs an angel to take the coal from the altar and to touch it to his lips. And that was a powerful imagery because he said, your sins are atoned for, purged. The altar, the place of sacrifice, is the place of your forgiveness. But here, Jeremiah's first thought isn't that he's not righteous enough. I'm too young and I don't know what to say. So the Lord touches his mouth, I'll put my words in you. Mm. What glorious encouragement. Keep 
Hebrews 13, 5, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Christian, hear this. As you do what the Lord calls you to do. And please, I'm not trying to, I'm not looking for all of you to go into vocational ministry. All right? Um, it'd be awkward trying to pastor a church of five or six after this long, right? Everybody else going to vocational ministry. I mean, the Lord could do that, certainly. But all of us have callings and ways to serve. And we ought to seek that out. And you seek that out by doing. Well, I don't know if I can do this. Well, let's find out. What if I mess it up? We're counting on it. We count on you growing, learning, getting better. You may start in this place and figure out that's not where you belong. I mean, I've told you the silly story about the, the, the farmer who looked up in the sky as he's out plowing and you're in a plant and he saw the letters in the clouds PC. And from that, he took it, preach Christ. So he came to church that Sunday, surrendered to the gospel ministry and then preached the following Sunday. And after he got done preaching, the pastor came up to him and said, brother, are you sure the Lord wasn't saying plant corn? Christian, be busily about what the Lord speaks to you through His Word. Be useful. Finally, we see the purpose of God and the messenger's mission. I've set you this day over nations and over kingdoms. Pluck up, break down. Destroy, overthrow, build, the first four are about ruin. The last two about hope. With the Lord using him, this prophet is more powerful than kings. Yes, the message is primarily judgment. Pluck, break, destroy, overthrow. But it's not exclusively. Build, plant. You see, my friend, when the Word of God comes to us, it comes to us right here where we are and what we're doing. It is a Word planted, anchored in our history and in the time in which we live. Certainly there are challenges, believers, but this is not by accident you are here. This is not happenstance. God wants you at this time, in this place, to serve Him for His glory and for the good of the kingdom. You're not an accident. Your objections, the almighty merciful God would sweep out of the way. He prepares you by promising to be with you. We find ourselves in the early part of the 21st century in a remarkably hostile environment. Truth. <laughs> Can I say that I think Pilate was far superior than most modern leadership today on the issue? At least 
he had the temerity to admit what is truth. Now we're saying there is no such, leadership says there's no such thing as truth. It does not exist. Pseudoscience is destroying people's lives. Pseudo-spirituality is lulling people into spiritual numbness. A culture which without merit or reasonable basis considers itself superior to any culture or people before it, but that is so blind it considers light to be darkness and darkness to be light. I mentioned Pilate. On our way to church on Sunday mornings, managed to catch a little bit of Alistair Begg's broadcast. I got to tell you, Alistair has to be one of my favorite preachers of all time. Gloriously effective pastoral preaching. And I only got to catch a portion of it this morning, but his observation about Pilate, this one stuck with me, made me think about what I'm preaching today. So I've done my duty. I'm giving credit where credit is due. Okay? At one point, Pilate looks at Jesus and basically says, don't you know who I am? You won't answer me. You're not going to talk to me. I'm the one who has the power to put you to death or spare your life. Don't you know who you're talking to? And then he makes this wonderful application and extrapolation. That is every single unbeliever. Every unbeliever kind of wants to say, now Lord, I know you say, and you say it through these preachers, and you say it through the Word of God, that I've got to repent of my sins and believe in Jesus Christ, and I have to live a certain way afterwards, and I've got to humble myself to do this, but you don't know who I am. You need to adjust this thing for me. Because I'm really not that bad. And I'd be a great asset but your terms are too harsh. Oh, my dear friend, do you understand that is the heart and soul of the human autonomy that has led you to damnation and everlasting destruction if you will not repent. Now, we'll see as we go through the book, nobody much pays attention to Jeremiah. He announces it, Kind of like Ezekiel. I love that passage in Ezekiel. One of the reasons we read it was a similar thing. He's going to tell folks stuff they don't like, and I love how the Lord says, don't be dismayed at their faces. I held on to that verse early in my pastoral ministry because I had one little old lady in my first church that made faces at me. She sat about where you are, Robert, right about there, and if I said something she didn't like, she would gasp audibly, loudly, and then look daggers through me and then turn her head and not look at me at all. And when she did, it was sideways. And you could tell she just wanted to slap me silly. It's a tough thing to preach when people make faces at you. <laughs> Yours at 64, I'm more likely to call you out than I am to endure. <laughs> Christian, this is your calling. 
You're called to salvation, but you're also called to serve in the kingdom. And that looks all sorts of different ways. It doesn't have to be church employment of some kind. There's all sorts of ways to serve the king in the kingdom. But, oh, friends, could we do that consciously? Could we do that with intentionality? Could we do it? You know, if you do it in the right way, it'll actually make things where you work, where you labor, where you do all this stuff, much more pleasant internally. It may not change the circumstances outwardly at all. But if you really believe you're serving the king, it's easier to serve. Hmm. Just as the word of the Lord spoke into darkness and chaos and created order in a world that was very good, the word of the Lord, the gospel, the good news, spoken into this darkened moral, intellectual, and emotional chaos of our time will bring life and life and salvation. Oh, my friends, hear the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, may the word you spoke to Jeremiah be the word you speak to us. May we gladly and freely and joyfully serve you, even if the service seems small and the influence minuscule. May we serve. May the word come to us. And we rejoice, our Father, it is not just that the word of the Lord was spoken, but the word came in the person of Jesus Christ. He dwelt among us. And by his saving work, by his death, burial, and resurrection, by his ascension on high and seated at the right hand of the throne of God, he reigns. And he brings many into his kingdom. Help us to hear this and heed this. In Jesus' name. Let's stand together as we sing.